it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. You're listening to the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in every single weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. If you're new around here, awesome. Glad you're listening. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com and a Fox News contributor in addition to the radio duties here. I'll be on Fox Business Network tonight in the 6 p.m. hour. Hope to see you there. On the radio, here's the lineup today. J.D. Vance, Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Ohio. He will be here coming up in about half an hour. Molly Hemingway joins us in the next hour. And then Joey Jones from our New York studios. He'll be here in our last hour reflecting on the Afghanistan withdrawal. He has a personal investment in that story. He and many veterans I look forward to that conversation with Joey. As we come on the air here today, let me bring you a Fox News alert. This just breaking in the last couple of minutes. There was this hearing today over the potential unsealing of that affidavit or the underlying affidavits leading to the search warrant being granted for that raid at Mar-a-Lago. And some people, media outlets and a lot of Trump allies pushing for the underlying evidence that went into that warrant being unsealed and revealed to the public. So there was an argument today in a federal courtroom over that very issue, and it just broke that the judge in the case has said that he is inclined to release some of this information. And it looks like there would be potentially a week from now a redacted version of this affidavit being made public. And the judge gave the Department of Justice until August 25th, so one week, to propose redactions. And then I guess the judge would review or the judge would review those redactions or those proposed redactions. And then we might get even more information about what led up to the information underlying the raid on Mar-a-Lago last week. We already have the warrant itself, but not the evidence leading or the probable cause or whatever it was leading up to a judge signing off on the warrant. I think more transparency is necessary and vital under these circumstances, given how unusual this case is and the extraordinary step of the FBI showing up to execute a search warrant at the house of a former president, all the political baggage and background that this entails, all the memories that it dredges up of Russiagate, for example, to go through this again and again rely on a black box and anonymous sources and tailored cherry-picked leaks. It's just not acceptable. And it at least to me seems hopeful here that a judge understands that and is willing to unseal at least portions of the raid affidavit after the Justice Department proposes redactions. They have a week-long deadline to do so. So perhaps we will get 
some reaction to that development from Molly Hemingway coming up in our next hour. But that news just coming across, and I wanted to share it with you because it's a story, of course, we've been following closely here on the show. In the meantime, I want to talk about this. This week it became the law. President Biden left one of his vacations to come back to the White House to sign the Inflation Reduction Act, and then he headed off to his next vacation. And in fact, we just got word and guidance from the White House that the president will remain on vacation through next Wednesday. If I'm not mistaken, he did about a week, didn't he? Down at a beach in South Carolina, beautiful place, some exclusive island. I think some friend gave him the place to stay for free. That's nice. As I say, no problem with the president taking some R&R. It's a stressful job. Then he flew back to D.C. for the photo op to sign the bill. Big victory, as the media likes to say. Less victorious feeling, I think, for a lot of American taxpayers. And then literally within hours, the Republicans were joking it was a five-hour work week. They, like, fired up the choppers and all the SUVs and the whole entourage and off to Delaware it was. And I guess he was going to one property in Delaware, not at the beach. And now the new announcement is he's going to change locations within Delaware to the Rehoboth Beach property. And he'll be there through the weekend into Wednesday, which sounds awfully nice. So, I mean, a lot of Americans who says Americans don't take two week vacations anymore. Right? This is something you hear from Europeans and people other countries and you know, folks who don't live in America. They sometimes poke fun at or, or worse. They judge us in America for how industrious we are, how hard we work, how much we work, how little vacation we get. Like in some of these places in Europe, they basically just take off the summer. It's like, oh, August, uh, see you in September. All right, it's just like how they operate. Now, the productivity of their economy reflects that. And yes, we have a culture, whether you like it or not in this country, where you don't really take a ton of vacation time, certainly not weeks on end. I think I've only been fully off of work for two consecutive weeks, gosh, in, in recent memory for my honeymoon. And that's kind of like the only exception. Two weeks is the absolute most, but usually it's a week. A lot of Americans don't have a ton of vacation time to begin with. One week is like a full vacation Here's the president of the United States taking what amounts to almost a two-week vacation. And obviously, you know, his people will huff and puff and say he can run the government from wherever he is. And he's briefed every day and all. And, yeah, we get it. He's working from home, sort of, wink. You can go on a little bike ride, maybe take a cat nap or two here. He's on a winning streak, after all. He solved inflation, 0%. Now he's saved the climate. Climate change is over. Give the guy a break. You know what? Take a month, Joe. Take a month. I'm being a little sarcastic here, obviously. But what the Democrats are saying and a lot of their cheerleaders out there are saying is what has been achieved by the president. He's got this big comeback brewing. He's on this big roll, the winning streak of Joe Biden. And he's signed the Inflation Reduction Act. And this is the biggest investment, yada, yada, yada. They're focusing now mostly on climate change after the pivot away from inflation, even though they named the bill inflation reduction because that's the number one concern to the American people. 
much less so than climate change. Frankly, just look at all the polling. It's not even close. So rather than saying, hey, let's spend $750 billion on a climate change bill with a bunch of tax increases and doubling the IRS, right? they decided not to name it the a climate change spending tax hikes and IRS doubling bill. They called it the Inflation Reduction Act because that's how they wanted it to be referred to during the debate. Then the debate was over. The Democrats got their ducks in a row and they passed the thing. And we've talked about all the reasons that the experts say this is not going to have any impact really on inflation at all. Maybe a tiny negligible amount in both directions, making it a little bit worse at first and maybe a little bit better like eight, nine years from now. It's just ridiculous. And he's just saying constantly, repeatedly, he won't stop saying it, that no one's going to see a higher tax burden. No one's going to be impacted by these tax increases or any of it if they're making less than $400,000. It's not true. It's untrue multiple times over. CBO has found that, of course, a ton of people making less than four hundred grand will be in the crosshairs of this newly muscular, like, steroid-infused IRS where they're getting $80 billion in doubling in size. And I see some of the fact-checkers are out there saying, well, not all of the 87,000 are new auditors or agents. Some of it, some of the hiring is for other purposes. And also, a lot of this money goes to improving the customer service experience and the interface with taxpayers. I saw one estimate that that last part is about 4% of the bill. And one of the talking points is, well, this bill just makes sure that people who are retiring can get replaced at the IRS. That's not true. A lot of folks on Capitol Hill, Republicans are saying no. Existing appropriations authorities allow people to be replaced. This is hiring nearly 87,000 new employees. And they're playing little silly games trying to make it seem like that reality isn't true. And the obvious implication of that reality doesn't apply to you, but it does. As CBO has explained, disproportionately, middle class and working class Americans have to deal with the nightmare of audits. And now there's going to be a lot more audits and a lot more auditors at an IRS now flush with cash to go out and enforce the hell out of this stuff and to make sure everything's above board. And they will make your life a nightmare pouring over every scrap of paper that you've got. And there's got a lot more manpower now to do that, and they're going to start ramping that up. And they tell you it won't affect you, but when they have the opportunity to vote to that effect, to shield anyone making less than $400,000 from new audits as a result of all of this, every single House Democrat voted that down, which, as I've said multiple times, is all you need to know, right? Rather than assurances and political sound bites and spin, when there was a chance to codify the promise, they said no. Because the promise is meaningless. And then on the tax increases, you've got the Joint Committee on Taxation, nonpartisan on Capitol Hill, saying every single income group will be impacted by those tax hikes. They're not going to raise everyone tax. uh, They're not going to raise everyone tax rate. Not everyone's tax rate will go up. But when you raise taxes on businesses, for example, inevitably, those costs get passed down to consumers and workers. And so their analysis was this impacts every income group. 
not just a handful of rich billionaires and corporate fat cats, which is the way they're trying to message this. So Biden keeps making that claim over and over again. I can bike past the journos on the beach in Rehoboth and say the lie one more time. He won't sit down for a one-on-one interview where he can actually be pressed on any of this stuff. In fact, the Republican National Committee noted earlier, the president of the United States has not done an on-camera interview with a U.S. press outlet, so a domestic press outlet on camera, an interview like that, since the 10th of February. February to March to April to June to July to August. So we're at like at five months plus, almost half a year since he's done this. I think we might know why. Remember his interview with George Stephanopoulos about the Afghanistan debacle as it was going on, where he ended up saying a bunch of things and making promises that weren't true and got contradicted and made a lot of trouble for himself. He's only gotten less sharp less in command since then, and I'm sure they've just decided it's not worth it. Let's not put him at risk. Let's not, you know, have any sort of problem here, and we can avoid some own goals, some self-inflicted wounds, by just not really doing a bunch of interviews, or really any, and trying to avoid scenarios where there are opportunities for in-depth questions and follow-ups They're just kind of trying to do the basement presidency as close to that as they can. It worked in the campaign. I don't think it works as president, but that's the approach. I think it's the approach by default. I think this is what they've decided they need to do. Now, on the inflation reduction part of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a total misnomer, what I'm struck by is how incoherent and disparate the talking points are on the left when they try to actually justify it. And I want to play you a few sound bites back to back coming up in the next segment that I think underscore how much of an afterthought inflation reduction actually is in this thing. They haven't even bothered to get on the same page with a halfway credible story about this. Wait till you hear this. The White House versus Joe Manchin when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, I'm Guy Benson. So I've been telling you since day one of this debate that the whole inflation reduction piece of the Inflation Reduction Act that's now the law was like a sick play, right? They were insulting our intelligence, trying to tell us that hundreds of billions of dollars in new spending would help reduce inflation. And they, they're now like at $3.8 trillion that they've spent during the Biden presidency, $3.8 trillion. And they just keep going like, well, yeah, the first two trillion, I guess, probably fueled inflation. But uh, this other stuff won't. (laughs) In fact, they say the opposite. They went from saying it wouldn't do anything to it's transitory to, oh, magic, we can we can spend a bunch of more money and it will have no negative impact, even though a lot of experts say it is a non-event when it comes to inflation at best. But, hey, you just throw a label on it. 
and hope that the uh, the message sells. Polling shows that that particular message is not selling. But I think one of the more insulting parts of it is how little thought they've even put into their own spin. They, they're barely even trying. They didn't get on the same page and say, here are our talking points. If we're going to call it this and try to convince people this is what it will do on inflation, let's at least have our ducks in a row and claim the same thing. And that's not that's not what's been happening. The energy secretary gave this whole answer about tax credits. If you spend thousands, you can get tax credits back. Doesn't help anyone right now who can't afford to spend thousands on things like retrofitting their house or buying an electric car. Jamie Raskin, one of the Democrats in Congress who voted for this thing, was asked how specifically this would help lower costs. And his answer was, next question. We played you that clip. Well, here's Brian Deese one of the big uh, advisors over there at the Biden White House, kind of going the Granholm route in cut 19 with this explanation. You know, some of the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act are going to ha- uh, help really immediately. Uh-huh. Uh, the provisions that give consumers tax rebates uh, or tax credits for uh, going out and buying more energy-efficient heaters, more energy-efficient appliances, those are enacted immediately. Yeah, that's again, spend a bunch of money that many Americans don't have to spend and you'll get tax credits. That's the immediate help, quote unquote, that some Democrats are trying to claim will help reduce inflation or reduce costs for the American people right away. So some of them are sticking to the line. Yes, this will help immediately. That's how they partially tried to market the thing. But then when a CNN reporter was asking Joe Manchin, who basically made this whole thing happen, the Democrat from West Virginia, How is this going to help people immediately? Well, Joe had a very different script that he was reading from in Cut 20. Is it misleading to call this the Inflation Reduction Act for Americans when it's not going to make their grocery bill cheaper? It's not going to make everyday goods cheaper for them? Why would it? Why would it? Well, immediately it's not. But we never said anything happened immediately like today. It's turned the switch on and off. That was actually Hillary Vaughn, our colleague. The other soundbite was on CNN. She's like, isn't it misleading to call it that when it's not going to help people immediately? He said, well, why would it? Immediately, it's not. We never said anything's going to happen immediately. While the White House is saying, oh, yes, it will happen immediately. Here are the things. They don't even care about the details. It's an afterthought. They put a name on the thing to try to fool you, and now it's off to their next priority. And you're going to be stuck on some level with the bill. Praying that the new IRS won't come and knock it, which they might. J.D. Vance coming up next on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website and the podcast free every single day. Well, we are, of course, talking so much about the midterm elections and the importance of these elections. And they're coming very soon. 
We'll be really in the home stretch after Labor Day, but hey, we're more than halfway through August at this point. And one of the races starting to get more attention is the Senate race in Ohio, which at least at the moment looks uncomfortably close for the Republicans. With us now is J.D. Vance, a Marine, a businessman, author of the best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, which I read and very much enjoyed. He's an Ohio native, and he's now the GOP nominee for U.S. Senate in that race in his home state. J.D., welcome to the show. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. You bet. Let's just start big picture. What are the stakes of this race in your mind? Why should a national audience care? Well, I think first, you know, we can't take back the Senate as Republicans unless I win my seat and a couple of other critical seats uh, go the Republican direction. And if you just take what recently happened, the travesty known as the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, not just the act itself, but a number of good amendments that if we just had one more Republican in the Senate, we could have limited the 87,000 IRS agents from going after people who made under $400,000 a year. We could have limited the assault on the American fossil fuel and energy sector. Uh, so there's just a lot more we could do if we had more Republicans. And because, you know, this is a marquee race in a state that, that still has one Democratic senator and one Republican, uh, national Democrats have poured a lot of money into the race. And, uh, you know, they're trying to take me down, but I don't think they're going to be successful. Yeah, look, they have spent a lot of money. And there have been whispers out there spilling into the press that Republicans are worried about your fundraising and the quality of the campaign and all that stuff. I know that there have been a couple polls out there showing your opponent, Congressman Tim Ryan, ahead in the race, although they were pretty soft numbers. There's a new poll out yesterday from Emerson that has you ahead by three points. So that's obviously, I would imagine, encouraging news to you guys. On the other hand, in the same poll, Governor DeWine, a Republican, he's up 16 points. Trump against Biden in a hypothetical rematch. Trump is up 14 on the generic ballot. Republicans are up 10 in this same poll. You're only up three. Are you concerned about that or do you have maybe an explanation for why there's that lag, at least for now, in your numbers compared to the Republican numbers across the board? Well, I'm not concerned about it. It's just a broad comment. Let me say I'm extremely skeptical of polls at this stage of the race. I talked to Tom Cotton recently, the senator from Arkansas, and you know, polls had him losing his race uh, in 2014 by double digits until pretty close to the end, and he, he won by 17 points. So uh, I, I think that the, that the polling industry is a bit of a joke. And even though the Emerson poll was good news for us, I, I don't take it as, as some excuse to not continue to do the work. I think we're going to win our race, but we're not going to do it uh, on the strength of public polling. We're going to do it on the strength of the broader campaign. Uh, you know, the thing I'll say is, is we have been targeted by national Democrats in a way that virtually no other candidate running for any office in the country has been targeted. Uh, we had a very tough Republican primary, nearly $20 million of negative ads spent against me. And so we certainly come into this race in a position uh, where, where we have some work to do, uh, no doubt about it. But we are doing that work, and I feel very good about where we are. And at the end of the day, uh, we, we, we have to consolidate Republicans and persuade moderates that the Biden-Ryan agenda has made them poor and has made our country less secure, especially at the southern border. It's not really a hard argument to make, which is why I'm confident we'll win. Yeah, and if you look at some of the polling in recent cycles in Ohio specifically, the polling average on Election Day vastly underestimated the eventual 
winning victory margin for the Republican, including President Trump. So I think that's one other element to keep in mind here as people are sort of freaking out about polling in August. And I did a whole monologue yesterday about why some of that bedwetting is a little bit premature. You know, get back to me in late September. Maybe it's a different conversation. But you just mentioned something that I want to drill down on a little bit, J.D., the importance of consolidating Republicans, no doubt, especially in a state like yours, which is getting redder, and then persuading moderates and maybe swing voters and independents. You famously were harshly critical of President Trump back in the day, and you and I actually have that in common. Uh, We uh, agreed largely on that front. And then you've had a big change of heart, so much so that the president ended up endorsing you, which was crucial in your primary. And, And I'm still more skeptical of Trump than you are. Setting aside, and you've been asked that question a thousand times about your evolution and why, what would your argument be not to a Republican in your state, maybe a moderate Republican, but one of those independent voters, one of those moderate centrists who swing either way, who might think this guy was criticizing Trump harsh, like you know, hardcore just a few years ago. Now he's touting his endorsement. Isn't that just typical, like, you know, say anything politics as usual? Is that really authentic? I think it's a fair question. Someone might be wondering, what would you say to that person if they challenged you that way? Well, I think it's totally a fair question. And I guess what's different is that when when politicians flip flop, they try to pretend that they haven't. For example, Tim Ryan has been campaigning on a middle class tax cut and just voted for 20 billion dollars in middle class tax increases. Uh, It's one thing to flip flop and pretend that you haven't. It's another thing to be honest with people about the fact that you change your mind. And I actually think it's a virtue uh, that we should we should see more from some of our public officials where instead of pretending that they've never had a change of heart, they admit that they're human beings. And when the facts change, you should change your mind. And you know, my simple argument with Trump is that I think he was a good president. I understand people don't like this or that, but I think fundamentally the policies of the Trump administration were good. They delivered prosperity. And, and my argument to, to, to voters, whether they're Republicans or whether they're you know moderate, more middle-of-the-road swing voters, is pretty simple, that we have real problems in the country Uh, They're not going to be solved by people who don't know what they're doing and who don't know what it looks like when the government fails you and your community suffers as a result of it. And I come into this, uh, if I I do become a senator, I come into the office uh, not just with some good ideas, but with the recognition that, you know, when when groceries go or when gas doubles, like you actually feel it. And I think it's important not, not just to have a good, you know, head for this stuff but also to have a good heart for it and to know what working families are going through. That's not Tim Ryan. It's unfortunately not too many of our politicians, but it's certainly me. Well, I do want to talk more here about your opponent. Uh, Congressman Ryan, he really presents himself. I kind of get a kick out of it, actually. You know, he shows up on Fox News without the tie or the, you know, the ties loosened. He's just sort of the everyman. He's just Mr. Independent. And you look at his ads, you would never know he's a Democrat. And he's just standing up to his party all over the place. That's what he's trying to put out there. He has outspent you vastly over the last couple of months trying to burnish that kind of image. And then, like, you know, I'm sorry, but you just look at his voting record. I, I You know, someone asked me the other day about this Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which is a, a ridiculous, ludicrous misnomer. And they said, did all of the Democrats, including the ones running for Senate, like Val Demings and Tim Ryan, did they all vote for this, too? I said, of course they did. I mean, Tim Ryan, if the question is, did he vote with Joe Biden on fill in the blank? The answer is literally always yes. It's all he does is vote for Joe Biden's policies 100 percent of the time last year. I just don't know how he thinks he's going to get away 
with that voting record compared to the way that he's trying to at least market himself to the people of Ohio? Well, he's betting on those of us in Ohio not being able to look up what he's actually done. And I think, frankly, he's betting on all of us being a little dumb. And I don't think we are. And I think that we're, we're, we're going to do in our campaign a very simple thing, and that's tell the truth. Because when people know the truth about what Tim Ryan has done and what he's failed to do, you're exactly right. They're going to see a guy who presents as a moderate in 30-second TV commercials and votes as a Washington liberal every single time on every single issue. You know, like this Inflation Reduction Act is a good example. Uh, I'm not happy with Joe Manchin that he voted for it. I don't think it was a good call. I think especially some of the amendments that, you know, for example, would have limited the IRS auditing uh, to, 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 to people who made over $400,000 a year. I, I think that Joe Manchin really screwed up on this. But at least there was an open question about how Joe Manchin would vote on this thing. He has some independence from his party. That's not Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan does whatever the Democrats tell him to do, and that's what he would do in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like, a, you know, paint by numbers political attack. It just happens to be true based on the actual results, the numbers, the, you know, the, the vote list for Tim Ryan. He has been a totally loyal foot soldier for Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Every single vote they've needed from him, they've gotten from him as a congressman. And there's just no chance that given an opportunity in the U.S. Senate, that he wouldn't be doing the exact same thing, except this time for Chuck Schumer. I mean, it's really hard to find, aside from these poll-tested things and press releases and answers that he gives in the media, you can say whatever you want as a political candidate. This guy has an actual voting record, and the record speaks for itself, and it is totally lopsided. Lopsided isn't even the right word. It is 100% one-sided, even though his messaging is very much not. That's right, and it's especially shameless. You know, I've, I've never been in politics before. This is the first time I've run for office, and I, I, I haven't quite gotten used to this level of shamelessness, and hopefully I never will, uh, because, again, you can't vote for a guy 100% of the time. You can't support every single policy that the National Democrats have forced down the throat of the, of the people of Ohio and, and, and pretend somehow that you've shown moderation or you showed independence from your party. It's just not true. And I think that truth is the reason why Tim Ryan ultimately uh, is going to be unsuccessful in this race. You know, it's, it, it, it's also just you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is preposterous for a number of reasons. But you know, somebody made me aware yesterday of an analysis that suggested that the average family in San Francisco would get $12,000 and the average family in Youngstown, Ryan's congressional district, uh, would get $81. H- how do you look at a piece of legislation like this, claim that you're representing the people of Ohio, and send that much money to San Francisco and basically nothing uh, to, your, to, to your own constituents? I mean, thanks to Joe Biden's inflation, that can barely buy you a tank of gas. There's another issue that the Democrats have been hitting you on. They're saying you're an extremist on abortion, and the Democrats are spending gobs of cash on the issue of abortion all across the country, there was a big story about it, I believe it was in the New York Times this week, showing that Republicans are barely responding to these attacks at all. And you know it's been coming your way. It already has. It will continue to be on that issue. And, you know, you can defend yourself and, and explain your position. That's you know, part of your job as a candidate. On the flip side of it, though, what was it, a couple months ago, Tim Ryan was on special report on Fox News with Brett Baer. And my colleague, Brett, asked him and pressed him a few different times, was there a single limitation, legal limitation on abortion, any kind of abortion, one limit? 
or restriction that he would support. And he danced around, would not answer the question, and eventually it came around to the answer was no. He supports your opponent, Tim Ryan, supports abortion on demand through the ninth month to birth, paid for by taxpayers with absolutely no limitations whatsoever. That is a position held by, you know, about 12 to 19 percent of the American people. And I would guess even fewer in Ohio. And I'm just trying to figure out how he expects he's going to have some sort of a clean hit on you on this issue, calling you an extremist when his position is fundamentally and provably extremely radical. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just another issue where I think Tim is trying to pretend that he's, that he's something that he's not. He's hoping that, that the people of Ohio aren't, aren't wise enough to look into his record. I mean, to me, the, the abortion debate is fundamentally about how do, you, how do you strike the balance, of course, between individual choice and life and protecting the innocent. And I can accept that some people in Ohio are going to draw that line different from the way that I would. I am pro-life and I am proud of it. Uh, but I don't think anybody or very few people in Ohio would draw that line in a place where you can murder a 40-week-old baby in gestation. I don't even understand that position. It's barbaric, not just in the United States, but in every civilized country in the world. And the fact that Tim Ryan can't even admit that. Tim Ryan, by the way, who pretended to be pro-life until 2015, he decided he wanted to run for higher office. Uh, The fact that he's still defending that suggests that he really doesn't answer to the people of Ohio. He answers to the Democratic activists who fund his campaign. I mean, that's what this is all about. The entire Democratic fundraising machine is based on online small-dollar contributions from very far-left people. And while it makes it easier to run a Democratic campaign from a financial perspective, it also means that these guys are responsive to national activists, not to their constituents. J.D. Vance, my guest, running for U.S. Senate in Ohio. And you mentioned Youngstown. We actually have a new affiliate here on the Guy Benson Show in Youngstown. So the timing is propitious. You're going to be there for a big event. Turning Point is putting on an event. You'll be rallying with Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida on behalf of your campaign, trying to fire up some Buckeye State voters. Talk about that event upcoming. And what are your thoughts on DeSantis as he gets more and more national attention? Well, obviously, he's a very impressive guy, uh, not just as a governor, a very smart guy, I think very dedicated to doing the right thing in the state of Florida. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, we're, we're thrilled to have him in Ohio. I think he's very popular among the grassroots here in Ohio. But, you know, a lot of people, I think, even if they're not Republicans, admire the fact uh, that he didn't shut down schools for years. Uh, they admire the fact that, you know, he's actually going after some of the woke craziness. I mean, whatever your views on sexuality issues. I think we can all agree that we shouldn't be talking to six-year-olds about these questions. I, I just think he's been smart about a lot of stuff, and because of that, he's earned his popularity, and I think we're going to have a good time tomorrow. J.D. Vance is running against Tim Ryan in Ohio. It's an open seat. Rob Portman, the sitting Republican senator, is retiring. Big race, and as J.D. said, if the Republicans don't hold that seat, any path to a majority is basically gone. So it's an important one. The Democrats are spending just – prodigious sums of money to try to pick up that seat. And J.D., from his home state, he's there trying to win that seat and keep it for the GOP, the election coming up, of course, in November. And if you have time, you can also read his book, which is fantastic about his life and growing up and sort of the things that shaped his worldview, his family, Hillbilly Elegy. J.D., thanks for joining us today, and perhaps we'll talk again before Election Day. Thanks, Guy. Take care. That's J.D. Vance on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
We continue on the Guy Benson Show. Molly Hemingway is coming up with us to kick off the next hour. And I want to talk to her about this Mar-a-Lago raid affidavit ruling for at least the one-week deadline that this judge has now imposed on DOJ, seemingly with a mind to release, at least with redactions, some of this information. So that'll be interesting to get her reaction. I also might have to ask her about this. I just saw right before we were coming on the air, Brian Stelter over at CNN. One of our colleagues here refers to him as Humpty Dumpty. I would not do that, but someone does. Well, he is uh, out at CNN. I guess he's going to do his final show uh, this weekend, and then that'll be it for the tenure of Brian Stelter at CNN. And I guess as far as that network is concerned and the, the new management over there, that all the king's horses and all the king's men can't keep that career, at least at CNN, together. And so he'll be gone. Now, I am not one to sort of uh, spike the football on people getting bad news when it comes to their employment or their career. I think it's, you know, bad karma. It's not nice. Uh, he is he is really carved out an interesting niche for himself, I'll put it that way. And now I guess Tubin's Tubin's gone too, Jeffrey Tubin. He announced supposedly on his own terms that he was leaving CNN. He was the one who was suspended for a while. Remember that whole thing? The old Zoom situation? Yeah. So I guess Tubin is now uh, leaving CNN to perhaps spend some more time with himself. I don't know what he would do. All that time on his hands. But yeah, so Tubin Stelter, you sort of wonder, you know, what might be next over there at CNN. They're really struggling in the ratings, so it's kind of fascinating to watch just as someone in the industry. Maybe we'll get Molly Hemingway's take after this. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a new hour on the Guy Benson Show, our middle out of three, between three and six Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free and on demand at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We always appreciate you being here. And a Fox News alert as we begin our number two. The Dow closing up just barely, up 19 points, and it is just shy of 34,000. 33,999 at the end of trading today. And with us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of Justice on Trial, also author of the book Rigged. And Molly, good to have you back. Great to be here with you. I want to get your reaction to a few stories breaking today. The first we touched on at the very top of the show last hour, this judge down in Florida, federal judge saying that he has now given the DOJ a week to propose redactions to these underlying affidavits that went into getting this search warrant for Mar-a-Lago ahead of that raid early last week. And I know a lot of people have been clamoring for more information. It very much sounds like the judge is open to that. Uh, what do you think the significance is to the ruling this afternoon? 
So I think that he should have ruled either to not allow any revelation of the underlying affidavit or to have disclosed it completely. And the arguments actually are in favor, even though it was the government that wanted to hide the affidavit and the Trump team wanted to disclose it. The arguments in favor of keeping it hidden are pretty long and well-established. I mean, courts have discussed this over many decades, and there's no right to see an underlying affidavit. The problem with doing what he sounds like he wants to do is that disclosing it with redactions is just a horrible idea for transparency. We went through years of the Russia collusion hoax where we would get little snippets of redacted documents where the redactions were done in such a way as to make it sound like there really was something to the Russia collusion hoax. And you'd have senators and congressmen working really hard to get those unredacted. And when they did, it would turn out that there was nothing there other than embarrassing information that showed that the government didn't really have a case. To continue doing that kind of stuff at this time, it's just a disaster for everybody. So you'd rather just see nothing? Yeah, it'd be better. It would be better for the FBI and Department of Justice if you just saw nothing, because there's no trust there because the FBI and DOJ lost that trust with the American people. And there's just too much opportunity for game playing. I'm not surprised. And this judge does not have a great reputation, so I'm not surprised that he would come up with the worst possible option. But I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, it seems like it's maybe trying to split the baby. And I at least appreciate, look, as you said, well-established precedent. You don't have to release any of this stuff during an active investigation. They could have just stuck with that. Also, this is not just, you know, your average day on the job, you know, uh, if you're an FBI agent. It's not, you, you know, just like a typical, oh, it's, it's you know, happy Monday. Let's go raid the former president's house and, you know, cart away a bunch of materials. It is highly unusual and extraordinary which is why maybe they're even giving any consideration to releasing any of it. I'm in favor of more information, but as you say, games can also be played with what ends up getting redacted and what doesn't. And I guess DOJ has a week to propose the redactions. I don't know if they get the final say on that. I guess we'll be learning more as this all unfolds. Molly, another development that I wanted to ask you about today, and it deals with one of our uh, competitors here in the cable news space, uh, CNN parting ways with Brian Stelter, uh, the reliable sources host, media – I don't even know what to call him, media ombudsman or something over at CNN. A media critic seems like a stretch uh, given his body of work. Uh, just your reaction. I, I talked about it very briefly last hour. When someone loses their job, I, I never really like to celebrate that you know, unless it's a bad politician losing an election or something. Uh, I just think it's bad form – on the other hand, uh, this particular individual, uh, I think, has a special place in the commentariat. Um, it, maybe it would be one way to put it over the last couple of years, uh, way, way up on the high horse that he created for himself. And, and now I guess that perch will no longer be his. What do you make of that? Oh, it's just very interesting. I think a lot of people expected him to lose his job. He was widely known as Jeff Zucker's like personal uh, pit bull. He would go after Jeff Zucker's enemies. He was, you know, put on Fox News. He was his job was to watch Fox News. I think we're we're actually losing our most loyal viewer in Brian Stelter. Um, so it's not surprising that when Jeff Zucker was fired, that Brian Stelter was going to go too. But he did manage to hold on for several months. 
he kept on being actually pretty loyal to his his former boss. So again, not surprising, but I just hope that when he goes on to a new job, and I know it's probably not going to happen, but I do hope he will lie less frequently. He will understand the harm caused by some of his approaches. I mean, he really did a lot of damage. He was really, you know, he's, I actually know him and they're, you know, he's a father and a husband, and I just pray for his own sake that he will care more about doing his job with integrity and not just defaming other people and and attacking them. That's a pretty good line about Fox because they do, at both of those other networks, they watch, especially CNN, so much Fox News and they talk about us so, so much. And that was definitely part of the job description. Um, And yeah, look, whether he's got his next gig in journalism and he's, you know, writing or on TV somewhere, I don't know. I think maybe academia it, like journalism school, that seems like the type of spot that he might end up. We'll see. My guess is he'll have a soft landing. And just, you know, for his for his family, I hope, you know, you don't want the guy to be unemployable forever. That That's not that's not what we're talking about here. But in terms of what the job was uh, at CNN, I know he had a lot of critics and he was not afraid to poke the hornet nest uh, over and over again. And I guess it became just too much and so much that even the new management over at CNN said, OK, uh, this is not working out anymore. So I, I just wanted to get that out there and, and see what your thoughts were. Meanwhile, Molly, there's a clip going pretty viral on social media today. Sam Harris, who's sort of this interesting, iconoclastic, heterodox, atheist guy, uh, he was on a podcast, the Trigonometry podcast. He was talking about the Hunter Biden stuff and the laptop and all of it. And He started by saying he didn't care and couldn't have cared less if Hunter Biden, quote, literally had the corpses of children in his basement. It's Hunter Biden. It's not Joe Biden. He said, overall, Biden corruption, even if you could prove it all, would pale in comparison to Trump corruption. And then here's what he said in Cut 21 that I think is getting the most attention today. Listen, that doesn't answer the people who say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the, you know, the New York Post's Twitter account. Like that, that's a, just a conspiracy, that's a left-wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. Absolutely it was, absolutely, right? But I think it was warranted. So he's agreeing that this was a conspiracy. He's saying, oh, well, I mean, I guess if you have to lie about Russian disinformation and censor a news outlet and get a huge conspiracy of silence around a story damaging to one candidate that could potentially help the other because the other guy he hates so much, uh, you know, needs to be out of office. He's perfectly comfortable. He says it's warranted to have done that. I know a lot of people are angry at him today and people saying, oh, you know, you're you're ruining your reputation. You're revealing your character, all that. I actually think it's just a refreshingly honest explanation of the mentality of almost the entire news media. Sam Harris is not really one of them, but I think what he just articulated is precisely what big tech and big media did collectively for that reason in 2020. And I have to say, I wrote a book about this, which was about all, you know, there's so much talk about elections and it can get really crazy, but there were very real problems with the 2020 election related to the way our press handled things, the way big tech censored information. 
international election observers say you don't have a free and fair election if you are in a propaganda environment or in a heavily censored environment. And that's what we had in 2020. And it's a problem. And everyone should recognize it's a problem that, you know, it, and it contributes to people not having trust in how elections are administered. And it has nothing to do with the actual, you know, rules and laws governing an election, but it's very important. So he, I agree with you completely. He's getting in trouble for saying what basically much of the left believes to their core, that they were justified in widespread censorship and manipulation of information because they thought, the result was worth it. And, you know, that's yeah, the ends. That's it. The ends justify the means. He's just saying it. And you can at least disagree and say, wow, what a terrible position to have. At least he's fessing up and admitting to it. But that's I think he's speaking there, not so secretly, on behalf of lots and lots of people in the news media who are like the gatekeepers of information to millions of Americans, to your point, Molly, that you wrote about in your book called Rigged. Molly Hemingway, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Molly, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. When we come back, I've got more to say about the monkeypox saga. It gets worse. That's next. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. The podcast is free every single day. I would like to return to the issue of monkeypox. I feel like I'm one of the only people talking about this consistently. And I think part of that is because on the left, a lot of people don't want to highlight how big of a failure this is for the Biden administration. I've seen some LGBT activists picketing and complaining about it, a lot of folks are just more muted or looking the other way uncomfortably because there are some very uncomfortable truths that should be said and they'd be screaming about it under a Republican administration. And maybe more broadly, this is not getting a huge amount of coverage because, at least for now, the overwhelming majority of these cases are affecting gay and bisexual men. And so it's a tiny fraction of the population. So it hasn't broken through as a public health crisis in a way that other things have. But I get that. But it's still something that I think is very alarming. As someone who is in the gay community, I guarantee you that there would be a much louder, wider spread reaction to this if the political dynamics played a little bit differently. I think we all understand why. And I also think that the mistakes being made, the failures that we're seeing are attributable not only to the Biden administration and their incompetence, but also at least indirectly to wokeism. And I think that is part of the reason that a lot of people are also downplaying or averting their eyes on this situation. I find it hard to reach any other conclusion. And we have been walking you step by step through this. And there are some new developments just out today. In fact, this was last evening. The Washington Post, and I give them credit. Dan Diamond and a few other reporters at The Washington Post have been all over this in a way that a lot of the national media has not. And some of these important updates that I'm bringing you, I wouldn't have to share if not for their journalism and their reporting. So we are critical frequently of the media, and they deserve it, including on this issue in this moment. But when journalists and members of the media are doing their jobs, I think they deserve credit, 
and some applause. And so I wanted to at least make that point here before I started reading from this long deep dive that they published at The Post, Inside America's Monkeypox Crisis and the Many Mistakes that Have Been Made. And we've already run through a bunch of them. You can go back to old podcasts. I detailed them specifically. I wrote about them at townhall.com on the tip sheet as well. I've been on this for the last couple of weeks. So you can go back and familiarize yourself with some of that if you have missed it. The summary is we have a bunch of doses of a vaccine that we paid for, that we developed and paid for. And those vaccine doses have not ended up in America eligible to go into arms of at-risk people at the rate that they should have, not even close. And that's because of Biden administration negligence, stupidity, incompetence, cluelessness, denial. There was a bureaucratic snag where a bunch of doses, I think close to a million, just sat in a warehouse, sat in a plant in Denmark for weeks on end because the FDA hadn't inspected the place properly to their satisfaction and would not accept the EU's green light. That was imbecilic and a very costly mistake. The administration also just gave away hundreds of thousands of doses to European countries back when they thought, oh, we won't need them, we're fine. Biden back in May, the president himself was saying, we've got enough vaccine, don't worry about it. That was wrong. And as I've said before, now they've been scrambling, as they always are. It's just the scrambling administration. It's everyone, remain calm, everything's fine, we got this until it's undeniable that there's a crisis whether it's on Afghanistan or baby formula or this, and then they scramble away and try to deflect responsibility for what's happened or at least deflect attention. On the monkeypox front, they've been fairly successful at that, it would seem. Not here, but a lot of other places. Then there was close to a million doses that they didn't bottle because they forgot to ask for the vaccine doses to get bottled. And by the time they realized they hadn't done it, It was too late. A bunch of other countries were ahead of us in line because they had leaders more on the ball than the Biden administration. And then they were staring at this issue of maybe months, perhaps even to early next year into 2023. That's how long it could take to get the doses that we've already paid for. Ready to be shipped and disseminated and distributed here in the United States. Just a complete failure. The update that we brought you in recent shows was because they have this vaccine cliff and not nearly enough vaccine for the at-risk populations, they decided unilaterally that they were going to break the doses down into fifths. So the new injection, you would get only 20% of the vaccine compared to what was intended in a full vaccine dose, one of two. That was the plan. Now they're saying, actually, we're going to cut the doses by 80% so we can administer more shots But we're going to inject the substance a slightly different way. And theoretically, it should work. And we don't think that will affect the safety or the efficacy. Now, I've spoken to doctors who have said, including Dr. Sapphire here on the air, that theoretically, this plan could make sense. But there's no good data to back up that hypothesis. So what the administration is doing is running a large scale massive real-time experiment on hundreds of thousands of people, hoping 
that their theory is right. And the Washington Post in a previous story said, yeah, this is a big experiment. And the way that it's now being injected requires a lot of different training and different kinds of needles and can actually scar, blister and scar much more easily in terms of like a a lasting mark on someone's skin. And if the dosage actually doesn't work out as they hope it does in theory, then people might need more doses, more shots than expected. So it's a risky thing. And it's sort of a desperate measure that they're taking based on their own failures. And we're learning more about those failures and the degree of those failures in The Washington Post today. More on that upcoming on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We're halfway through the show today. And just before the break, I was talking about this monkeypox story and the ongoing drumbeat of failure from the Biden administration, which backed itself into a corner on this issue and then had to basically put the LGBTQ community in the crosshairs of a giant experiment. Hopefully it works out. And the vaccine manufacturer, this is where we last left off, they had come out and said, actually, we don't have data on this. We don't have good information on what you're trying to do. We're concerned about it. And Team Biden was just whispering to reporters saying, it'll be fine. They might just be greedy and worried about their profits. Right? Like, oh, look at these greedy people. We can maybe make this work where we need to buy a lot fewer shots, although we've already bought them. We've bought the doses. We just don't have them here. That's the problem. It has nothing to do with anyone's greed. It has everything to do with the administration's incompetence. But what they're trying to say is so doubts in the minds of anyone who reads about this saying, well, maybe it's just a greedy pharmaceutical company or whatever who want more doses purchased down the line so they don't want us to be more efficient this way. That's the implication that they offered. And that brings us to the new Washington Post story that I was just referencing here, the inside sort of roadmap on the monkeypox crisis. Let me read to you from some of this story. After Health and Human Services officials announced their proposal on August 4th, which I just described to you, changing the dosage, Paul Chaplin, chief executive of Bavarian Nordic, the vaccine's manufacturer, called a senior U.S. health official and accused the Biden administration of breaching its contracts with his company by planning to use the doses in an unapproved manner. Even worse, said two people with knowledge of the episode, Chaplin threatened to cancel all future vaccine orders from the United States, throwing into doubt the administration's entire monkeypox strategy. Quote, people are begging for monkeypox vaccines And we've just pissed off the one manufacturer, said one official who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to comment. The behind the scenes clash with Bavarian Nordic, which has not been previously reported, was just the latest episode in a monkeypox response beset by turf wars, ongoing surprises and muddled messaging, with key partners frequently finding themselves out of sync as they race to catch up to a rapidly unfolding crisis. So they were out there in the media accusing this company of corporate greed and basically telling people, forget 
the actual valid concerns being raised about data, like safety data on a drug being injected into human beings, it has to be because they're just worried about their finances and their profits. And just announcing without even consulting with this manufacturer, the people who actually make the drug, without even consulting with them before announcing the way that they're going to use this differently. Look, I'm fine with outside-of-the-box thinking and adjusting sometimes midstream. It's very galling that they have to do this on an experimental basis because of their own incompetence and ineptitude. But to not even consult with the manufacturer and just say, we think we've got this, don't worry. And anyone who says that this might be a problem, well, they might have a financial interest in saying that. That seems like exactly the wrong way to do it. We need confidence in public health decisions. We have not had that for a long time because of COVID in particular. This makes it worse. And they ticked off the CEO of this company so badly that apparently he threatened to withhold vaccine orders or cancel them to the United States in the future because of the breach of contract. Because probably, like, if something goes wrong, there could be liability for the company. Here's their product being used in an unapproved, untested way. They object, and they're getting thrown under the bus. And then you've got people in the Biden team wringing their hands, looking at each other like, oh, gosh, now we've pissed off the one manufacturer. We've screwed this up. People are begging for the vaccine. There's not enough of it to go around. And the people who actually have it, the people who make it, we are actively antagonizing them now to cover their political rear ends, which is so often the case. Everything is political with this crew. It's all about optics, including the nomination and confirmation of the health secretary, a subject that I've talked about before and will return to here in just a moment. The Washington Post story goes on, citing interviews with more than 40 officials working on the monkeypox response. Quote, early mistakes, including the failure to recognize the virus was spreading differently and far more aggressively than it had previously, and a plotting bureaucracy left hundreds of thousands of gay men facing the threat of an agonizing illness. And experts fear broader circulation of a virus that can infect anyone by close contact. Right now, this is spreading mostly sexually, almost exclusively among men. If this starts to spread other ways, because it can, I think maybe we'll start to hear more about it. And these failures from Team Biden might start to impact a bunch of other people who haven't been thinking about this story very hard. Here's another example of the problem from the post-expose. As cases climbed in June, White House officials continued to assure the public that the situation was being handled. Pride Month festivities celebrating gay life went on as planned around the country, many for the first time since the coronavirus pandemic began. Quote, we have tests for monkeypox. We have vaccines for monkeypox. We have treatments for monkeypox, a top official said in a news conference June 10th. We have a multi-pronged approach to deploy those tools to ensure we're fighting this outbreak as effectively as possible. That was the quote. But physicians, experts, and patients described a different picture. Growing delays in trying to access tests and treatments. And little visible urgency to fix it. Oh, growing delays in access to tests and treatments. That sounds familiar. Little urgency. So they're out there giving statements, giving quotes, don't you worry Things are under control. 
Calm down, everyone. Go on with your gay pride celebrations. Nothing to see here. In fact, a lot of these public health officials have seemed disproportionately concerned about what to call the virus. Oh, is monkeypox somehow derogatory? Maybe we shouldn't use that term. Oh, should we really focus on the gay and bi community? Is that stigmatizing? Oh, can we even talk about these things using plain terms like men and women? Or do we have to go full woke with all of these made up nonsense terms or muddled, confusing, woke lexicon items? Like so many of them are deep down the rabbit hole of politics and political correctness and the word police and like the woke brigade that they can't even focus on the actual issue, which is communicating clearly and effectively and correctly about a rampant communicable disease that's spreading. This is such an illustration of so many of the things that are wrong with this administration, with bureaucratic, unresponsive, unaccountable government and the wokeification of public health. It's like a little mini tempest after a huge storm that we've all been living through with COVID. So Biden and others are saying, we got this. It's fine. We've got enough vaccine. We have testing. Don't you worry. And then on the ground, health providers and patients were experiencing a very different story, a very different reality. Which brings us back to Javier Becerra, the HHS secretary, and the ongoing embarrassment that he remains in that position. I will get into more of that as soon as we return. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thanks for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. And once again, we return to Javier Becerra, whom I've talked about a lot, I think justifiably, during this monkeypox disaster, and who is the leader of the Health and Human Services Department in the Biden administration. Put in charge by a Democratic president and confirmed by every Senate Democrat in lockstep in the middle of a pandemic that had killed hundreds of thousands of Americans already by the point that he was confirmed. With no health experience at all. He was a lawyer and a politician. That's it. But because he checked an identity box, they basically just grabbed and said, that'll do. Put him in there. Great. Confirmed. A few days ago, there was yet another story about him, this time in Politico. We've heard grumblings and whispers and attacks on him, even from within the administration now, for over a year. How he's not doing a good job? (laughs) Shock of all shocks. The guy with no experience isn't doing the job properly? Wow. Who could have guessed? Well, this hit piece, I think a deserved hit piece, but this one comes from Politico. Again, this was a few days ago. Listen. As the Biden administration scrambled last month to diffuse anger over its sluggish response to the monkeypox outbreak, HHS Secretary Javier Becerra floated an idea. Tell people the states need to do more. Becerra's idea caused immediate alarm, according to people familiar with the matter. The Biden administration would look like it was ducking responsibility for managing a growing health crisis, officials cautioned. On top of that, it could alienate state health departments that had been critical to the fight against coronavirus and would be necessary allies if the U.S. had any hope of stamping out monkeypox. Despite the warnings, 
Becerra went out days later and made his case, basically blaming states. Blame shift. Activists and public health experts who had spent weeks pressuring the administration to ramp up its response were incensed. State officials wondered if they were being set up as scapegoats. And inside the White House, the episode reinforced the belief that the health secretary's eagerness to pass the buck made him ill-suited to manage the health crises that have shaped President Biden's first term. Wow, that sounds pretty damning from Politico a couple days back, doesn't it? And yet we've had stories like this about Becerra clearly coming from sources inside the administration time and again. And they can whine and complain and say, look at the rotten job this guy's doing. This isn't going well. He's not up to this. He's not listening. And yet he remains on the job. He remains the health secretary after all of this because accountability isn't something that they do. In the Biden administration, no screw up is big enough to get someone actually fired for screwing it up. And certainly not the Latinx member of the cabinet at HHS who was put there for that reason exclusively. That's not what I'm saying. That's what was openly reported at the time. Josh Barrow, I've cited him a few times. He's a moderate writer. He's really ticked off about this whole thing. This episode, he's calling on Becerra to be fired. He says, quote, it is not an exaggeration to say that being a Hispanic ex-lawmaker is how Becerra got the HHS job. Biden hastily chose him despite his manifest lack of relevant qualifications in order to squelch a PR problem he was having during the presidential transition. Yes, Barrow writes, Becerra was given the top health care job in the administration as a quick fix to a PR controversy about cabinet diversity. He writes, it's outrageous that Becerra, who is doing an important job very badly, is being kept at HHS in order to meet a diversity goal. He should be fired immediately. Of course he should. But the reason that he hasn't been is self-explanatory. It's the same reason why he got the job in the first place. And what a slap in the face. There are tens of millions of Hispanics in this country. You're telling me none of them were actually qualified to do this job more than Becerra? Totally unqualified? Of course. Of course. If they'd wanted to seek someone with that particular background, I don't think that's how you should go about hiring in general, especially for the health secretary during a pandemic. But if that's what you want to do, at least do the due diligence and find someone with a CV that's relevant to the gig. They didn't even do that. They couldn't be bothered to do that. They had a problem on their hands with a handful of loud activists at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, and they were just like, oh, well, here's a guy with the right skin tone and the right surname and throw an X on the word Latino, and now we've got history being made, looks like America, historic diversity, you're welcome. That's it. That's what they did. And as he has failed and failed and failed in the job, according to the leaks from his own White House, his own administration, Becerra's own teammates turned on him long ago and have been leaking to journalists for months dating back into last year, as the failures pile up, and now here's a new one on monkeypox, he remains apparently 
a member in good standing of the Biden administration and a sitting cabinet secretary. Having ignored all the advice on monkeypox, what to say, what not to say, he did the opposite, went the political route because he's a political animal. He's a politician, a career politician. Of course he's going to do political things. It's the only thing he knows how to do. He certainly doesn't know how to be a manager on a, a national health apparatus. So he's just doing his thing, infuriating a bunch of people along the way, angering the vaccine manufacturer of the vaccine that we desperately need in this country as sort of like a knee-jerk crisis comms, blame someone else strategy to cover up for his own administration and his own department and agency's failures. And I'm not sure Joe Biden, the president, presiding over all of this, with whom the buck stops, I'm not sure the president has been asked once if he still has confidence in this man as HHS secretary. That would be the type of question, a big feeding frenzy, a Republican administration. Do you still, does the president still have confidence in so-and-so? In spite of this, how can you? We're not seeing any of that. No, it's the big winning streak. Dark Brandon rises. He's wearing the aviator's sunglasses again. He's got his groove back. That's what they're busy saying. Because there's an election coming up. They've got their blue jerseys on. They definitely don't want to bring something to the fore that would hurt the team. This would hurt the team. And it should. Because incompetence and wokeness actually has real-world consequences. It's not just theoretical. It's real. And it's hurting a community that they say on the Democratic side that they represent almost exclusively. Right. These are our people. And now they're like sacrificial lambs in a giant experiment that is explicitly not blessed by the manufacturer of a vaccine that we don't have enough of because the government has messed it up so badly. And we've got a president out to lunch, not answering questions almost ever on anything, certainly not on this, and a health secretary sitting around figuring out who else he can blame while his underlings whisper to reporters about what a bad leader he is. And on and on it goes. Congratulations. It's going great. And I'm going to keep talking about it as long as everyone else is looking elsewhere. I guess other people don't feel like this is something that they need to talk about or it's not in their interest to talk about. Well, we're going to do it here because accountability might be a four-letter word in the administration, but accountability is desperately needed. And as I keep saying, maybe the only way to visit some accountability on them since they won't do it themselves is at the ballot box and we know what's coming. Just a few months from now. The final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up next. Joey Jones will join us in studio when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Thursday. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. 
3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air every weekday. And the happy hour is our third and final hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Our friends over there are expanding, hugely successful. People love the product, including me. If you haven't tried it yet, I encourage you to do so. TheLongDrink.com, that's their website. You can see where they're sold near you, probably in your neck of the woods. A lot more places now. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Here at the show, our online home is GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of key stuff there, big interviews, other content, plus that free podcast on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on Fox Business tonight in the 6 p.m. hour, evening edit. See you towards the end of the hour if you'd like to tune in or set your DVR. Also, one more reminder, follow us on social media here at the show, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Joining us now from our studio up in New York, our headquarters, is Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, and host of Fox Nation Outdoors, Patriots Playlist on Fox Nation, and also the Fox podcast Proud American, available at foxnewspodcast.com. Joey, it's always great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. It's good to talk to you as well. I hate to bring it down, but I do want to ask you a very serious question. We've been talking all week about the Afghanistan withdrawal anniversary and some of the dark memories, really shameful memories, that are flooding back for a lot of people There was a story the other day about uh, a loved one of one of those 13 Americans killed in the bombing during the chaos outside the airport in Kabul a year ago, roughly a year ago. Someone, as the anniversary was approaching, took his own life. Someone, obviously, who's been struggling and grieving. And I would imagine there are probably some folks in the veteran community or the extended family of the veteran community who are really going through a very difficult, more difficult than usual time right now with these uh, terrible memories coming back into so many headlines and news coverage. What's your message just on a personal level as someone who uh, went through a lot of very difficult things yourself, of course, lost both of your legs. uh, What's your message to someone, either a, a fellow veteran or someone in their lives who is really having a very difficult time uh, in terms of grief and mental health right now, what would you want them to hear? Yeah, I think the uh, story you're talking about, and maybe I don't have my facts right on this, so I'll say my understanding is that it was the brother uh, of a service member that was um, I think that's right that was killed that day, uh, took his own life near or at a memorial for for the 13 that was killed that day, um, and that's tough. That's really tough. I don't know the the details of that. I don't know if there are a lot of veterans who are simply struggling because of how the war ended, because I think most veterans started to see the direction this was going to go one way or the other. I think that the images and the realization of it last year, this month, was very difficult. Uh, but I listen, it doesn't need to be my words. I've got uh, the words of a good friend of mine. Um, Lee Bowden, I know he doesn't mind for me to use his name. He he serves in the Marine Corps, serves honorably. We went to EOD school together. He was there. He was at Kabul. And he posted on his Instagram text messages between he and his wife because, you know, it is at war, but they had connectivity. And he was able to text with his wife during that time. And, you know, basically just letting her know that he was okay. And then the incident happened on the plane where where the bodies, the, the people fell from the plane and died on the tarmac. And, Part of his job, he was part of the response to that. 
And uh, and you could just read those text messages and tell he was he was struggling in the moment of knowing that that's what his service had had turned to. All of this culminating to civilians bum rushing an airplane. Uh, the pilot deciding to just go ahead and take off. That was the only way the plane was going to get out. He took off with a, a boatload of people that, that weren't really authorized, and he didn't know who they were, but that was safer than staying there. And then to see civilians fall to their death trying to get out of there and to understand that this is all happening because we spent 20 years there fighting and couldn't come up with a better plan on how to get out. This was before the 13 were killed. And uh, and so at the end of his post, he has his own caption, and I'll, I'll repost it on my, my social media. Uh, but at the end of his post, he says, you know, this 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 culminated, and I'm paraphrasing here, to uh, to be a, an, a, an operation that we were told would be orderly and well-planned. And at the end, he says, and it was anything but. And he's not overly political. He's not even complaining. He's reminding people of what that was like that day, and he's letting us know this is not the way we train and are told we're supposed to do things. We're told to pick up a rifle, charge into the enemy, and the reason why we should have faith doing that is because of the leadership we have and the and the the orders that we receive are well thought and planned. We have the best war colleges in the world, the best leaders in the world, and we're told all this from day one that it's okay to go spill our blood and give our lives and pick the pieces of our brothers and sisters up off the battlefield because when we do it, we do it in such a righteous way that every opportunity in the world to win has been given to us, and all we have to do is execute it. And when we do die, we die honorably. And then you look and you see our military reduced to shame that day. Now, I'm not saying any service member, even the generals, are, are shameful, but the, the, the sentiment was we spent 20 years in a country and decided to retreat in such a way that it was absolute chaos. That is shameful. Now, if that's a political decision or a military decision or both, we may never get the full answer on that. The generals have done a great job of trying to um, not redeem themselves, but maybe excuse themselves. Uh, you know, apparently um, our chairman, our joint chief of staff doesn't mind. You know, I could call him up right now and probably get as many quotes as I want for a book, I guess. But, uh, but as far as explaining why they made the decisions they made or any semblance of accountability, um, that's not going to happen. That word accountability is one that I used a few different times in the last hour on a completely different subject. But it seems like the common thread is the bigger the failure the more high profile, the more humiliating or problematic the failure is, the less likely accountability is going to result in this administration, in this federal government and the bureaucracy. And I think that is extremely angering and galling to an awful lot of people. While you were talking, I was trying to come up with an analogy for this, but then I realized there's no need for an analogy because the facts speak for themselves. Um, we don't have to bring the, pres- the office of the presidency down to may- a, a mayoral office to make it make sense. This is the president of the United States, someone who's in charge of all of us in some way, in charge of the government that we all should technically be in charge of ourselves. Um, his decisions made the, made the withdrawal from Afghanistan such that we had to evacuate. That's the point that they overlook and overlook with arrogance and blinders. They say ignorance is bliss. I guess stupidity is absolute heaven. His decisions, his administration's decisions, the policy and plan they put into place made what would have been a withdrawal a, an emergency evacuation and then called the evacuation a success. Think about that for a minute. I don't know how else to explain this other than 
you know, if you were the fire marshal that inspects a building and it's your job to make sure that building doesn't burn down and then the building burns down, but because of the firemen that work under you made sure the other two buildings didn't burn, you go tout your success. I mean, that, that's the best analogy I can come up with. You allow this to turn into an emergent situation. You allowed this to turn into a situation where people died. You allowed what could have been a plan in place to turn into an absolute chaos action. And then because our amazing men and women who fly planes and do logistics and hold a rifle were given a raw deal and made something decent out of it, you go out on the world stage and tout success. This man has been in office for 50 years and he hasn't any better he doesn't have any better idea of how to how to accept responsibility for something. I mean, people that voted for Biden reluctantly did so because of this lie that he was going to be this moderate uh bring people together guy. And then maybe their plan B was well at least he's been around, you know, he's vice president for 8 years, so things can't get that bad with him. Think about this guy. Of the four presidents that set in over this 20-year war, only one of them was elected with eight years vice presidential experience on this war. And he's the one that ended it this way. He's the, he's the only one of the four who had an actual resume and nearly decades experience fighting, coordinating with, negotiating with the Taliban and understanding that enemy and he stood on the pulpit and said there won't be people lifted off embassies. Kabul doesn't have to fall. At first he said Kabul won't fall. Then he said it's not it's not imminent that it will fall. When now we know, even when he said that, he knew that that's what our intelligence community was saying and that's what our military was saying. That's a tough guy. Listen, there are a lot of issues that are plaguing our country right now. And even though I'm a veteran and this issue is really important to me, I know there are things out there that are just as if not more important to other people, and I get that completely. But this issue is only a year out. And if we don't make sure Americans don't forget it, who will? And Americans shouldn't forget it. And if President Biden is never held accountable, the only opportunity we're going to have will be in November 2024. And that might be important enough for people to remember. I think that's right. I mean, accountability opportunity number one is this November and then potentially again a few Novembers from now. And I think Afghanistan is something it's probably not the number one voting issue for all that many voters, some but not many. But I think it's also in the background of America's collective psyche and our overall view of this president and his administration. And it was, if you look at the polling, the moment from which he has not returned in public trust and support. And I think that is for reasons that are obvious, the reasons that we're talking about and reflecting on right now. With Joey Jones, our Fox News colleague. Joey, we got to take a quick break. I want to continue this conversation with you as soon as we come back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Joey Jones, our colleague, is up in New York in our studio talking about the anniversary of the Afghanistan withdrawal and all the chaos and the bloodshed. And, Joey, I was thinking about it during the break. You were making the point about President Biden's resume and how long he's been in Washington. He voted for the Afghanistan war at the very beginning. He'd already been in D.C. for decades before that. He has been a part of this every step of the way, the Afghan policy, from voting for the war to being vice president for eight years during the war And now to this. And then he made a decision. You can agree or disagree with the policy decision to get us out completely of Afghanistan. No residual force, no support at all for the forces then that crumbled, the, you know, the Afghan security forces. 
you can say that was ultimately the right decision or the wrong decision as a policy, but then there's the execution of it. And I think what really bothered so many people was that for days and weeks leading up and months leading up to the final conclusion to all of this and all hell breaking loose, they were just playing it cool and saying everything was going to be fine and don't you worry, this is going to be orderly and peaceful and handled well. And even as they had every alarm bell going off internally and a bunch of people warning this is a slow-motion debacle, people were begging them to start ramping up the evacuations of allies and Americans. There's a report out from Republicans in Congress that there were more than 1,000 Americans still left behind in Afghanistan when we got out, tens of thousands of allies that we had promised to get out. And all that stuff was just slow walked and they dragged their feet while putting on a happy face publicly. And then astonishingly, even when the whole facade came crashing down, they decided just to like stick to the gaslighting, stick to the story. And they had the president come out and say, you know, big success. Congratulations. Let's move on. And this week, their line is no regrets, Joey. They they feel like they did the right thing and they're going to say they did it the right way. And they just frankly, hope people don't remember and that they do forget. They seem pretty politically invested in people forgetting. I think if you take a step back, my, my honest assessment is that it was a polit- it was a badly calculated political decision. I, as a Trump voter, I think there's a difference between a voter and a supporter. I don't support any politician because I don't, I don't believe them all to be honest with me at, at any given point. But as a Trump voter, and I voted for Trump twice, and if the if the choice were him or Joe Biden, I'd vote for him again in a heartbeat. But as a Trump voter, I understood that one of the tools in Trump's toolbox was hyperbole to the umpteenth degree. It was omnipresent in his personality before running for office, and it was front of mind when he ran for office. Big statements, the devil's in the details, but it's baked into what you're getting. Now, it's absolutely fair for Democrats to hit him on that. That's part of politics, and I'm not going to say it isn't. But when Trump stands up there and he talks about getting the troops out of Afghanistan, in hindsight, I look at that and I say he's talking about ending the ever the, the never-ending war in Afghanistan, which is different than what, say, uh, a war hawk like Lindsey Graham would call. At least he was honest and said, we probably need to have troops there in some way forever. And maybe that was Trump's plan. I don't know that. We may be sitting here uh, one and a half years into Trump's second term and, and be challenged as conservatives, to be honest about, if he failed in getting out of there. We don't know. We won't ever have the opportunity to yeah, know. And they were part of it. And we talked to Jack Keene about this the general exactly. yesterday. They, they got this ball rolling, certainly. But eventually, when the time came to make the real consequential final decisions – that was on the current commander-in-chief's well, watch. And that's my point. My point is the failure of this war is spread across four administrations. Ironically, Joe Biden is a part of one of two of them. But the failure of August 2021, the failure of the withdrawal, can't be punted back to Trump for the Doha agreement. It can't be punted in any direction. It can't be punted to the generals who we now know advise the president in a much different direction. It rests solely on the shoulders of Joe Biden, and I believe his political calculation was – if he didn't do it then, he wouldn't get it done before the midterms. He knew the floor was going to be wiped in the midterms, and he wanted this baked into his, the first half of his presidency, not the second. 
And that's a heck of a thing to live with as a service member that fought in Afghanistan because I believe that to be true because if I look back on my military service in the last 20 years, I don't think we fought a 20-year war. I think we fought 10 two-year wars where war strategy was determined by the midterm and general election ahead and what the American people would respond to. And it's not enough to hit politicians on voting to invade Afghanistan or to invade Iraq. You have to look at the votes they did over those 20 years on the NDAA to fund the wars there, to to, um, to give president the authority to continue to military operations. There are a lot of votes, not just one vote. There are many votes, dozens of votes mm-hmm. over those 20 years that show where politicians were at any given moment. And I think that's what Americans need to pay attention to. Well, and I think just to add on to that, my theory, at least part of this, is Biden said, here's a campaign promise. The polling shows that it's popular. Americans want us out. I want to be able to come out and say, I got us out and fulfilled the promise. And let's just make it happen. And it'll be a good thing for us politically. (laughs) Make it happen. And just the details, the crucial details on the operation and the scope of it and how much effort that would take. It was almost like secondary. And when they didn't have something clean and tidy approaching, that was going to perhaps get very messy and very ugly. He just didn't have the wherewithal to pivot or change or even the, uh, I would say, the humility to say, let's maybe delay this a little bit and do it right. He wanted to just get that done. He wanted to do the political thing, have the one-liner in his back pocket to use in the future, and the details sort of came second or even third, and that ended up being a disaster and a lethal one at that. Joey Jones, we've got to leave it there. Retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host on Fox Nation. You can check out all of his stuff on that platform as well. Joey, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. The happy hour chugging along here. Thanks for tuning in. Earlier in today's show, in our first hour, we welcome for the first time to the show, J.D. Vance, running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. He's the Republican nominee in that race, a race that's getting a lot of attention in recent days. Here's part of my conversation with J.D. Vance. Are you concerned about that, or do you have maybe an explanation for why there's that lag, at least for now, in your numbers compared to the Republican numbers across the board? Well, I'm not concerned about it. It's just a broad comment. Let me say I'm extremely skeptical of polls at this stage of the race. I talked to Tom Cotton recently, the senator from Arkansas, and, you know, polls had him losing his race uh, in 2014 by double digits until pretty close to the end, and he he won by 17 points. So uh, I I think that the the polling industry is a bit of a joke, and even though the industry poll was good news for us, I I don't take it as, as some excuse to not continue to do the work. I think we're going to win our race, but we're not going to do it uh, on the strength of public polling. We're going to do it on the strength of the broader campaign. Uh, you know, the thing I'll say is is we have been targeted by national Democrats in a way that virtually no other candidate running for any office in the country has been targeted. Uh, we had a very tough Republican primary, nearly $20 million of negative ads has been against me. And so we certainly come into this race in a position uh, where where we have some work to do, uh, no doubt about it. But we are doing that work, and I feel very good about where we are. And at the end of the day, uh, we, we, we have to consolidate Republicans and persuade moderates 
that the Biden-Ryan agenda has made them poorer and has made our country less secure, especially at the southern border. It's not really a hard argument to make, which is why I'm confident we'll win. Yeah, and if you look at some of the polling in recent cycles in Ohio specifically, the polling average on Election Day vastly underestimated the eventual winning victory margin for the Republican, including President Trump. So I think that's one other element to keep in mind here as people are sort of freaking out about polling in August. And I did a whole monologue yesterday about why some of that bedwetting is a little bit premature. You know, get back to me in late September. Maybe it's a different conversation. But you just mentioned something that I want to drill down on a little bit, J.D., the importance of consolidating Republicans, no doubt, especially in a state like yours, which is getting redder, and then persuading moderates and maybe swing voters and independents, you famously were harshly critical of President Trump back in the day, and you and I actually have that in common. Uh, we uh, agreed largely on that front. And then you've had a big change of heart, so much so that the president ended up endorsing you, which was crucial in your primary. And, and I'm still more skeptical of Trump than you are. Setting aside, and you've been asked that question a thousand times about your evolution and why, What would your argument be, not to a Republican in your state, maybe a moderate Republican, but one of those independent voters, one of those moderate centrists who swing either way, who might think this guy was criticizing Trump harsh, like, you know, hardcore just a few years ago. Now he's touting his endorsement. Isn't that just typical, like, you know, say anything politics as usual? Is that really authentic? I think it's a fair question. Someone might be wondering, what would you say to that person? if they challenged you that way? Well, I think it's totally a fair question. I guess what's different is that when when politicians flip-flop, they try to pretend that they haven't. For example, Tim Ryan has been campaigning on a middle-class tax cut and just voted for $20 billion in middle-class tax increases. Uh, It's one thing to flip-flop and pretend that you haven't. It's another thing to be honest with people about the fact that you change your mind. And I actually think it's a virtue uh, that we we should see more from some of our public officials where instead of pretending that they've never had a change of heart. They admit that they're human beings, and when the facts change, you should change your mind. And my simple argument with Trump is that I think he was a good president. I understand people don't like this or that, but I think fundamentally the policies of the Trump administration were good. They delivered prosperity. And my argument to to, to voters, whether they're Republicans or whether they're you know moderate, more middle-of-the-road swing voters, is pretty simple, that we have real problems in the country. Uh, They're not going to be solved by people who don't know what they're doing and who don't know what it looks like when the government fail you, fails you and your community suffers as a result of it. And I come into this, uh, if, I, if I do become a senator, I come into the office uh, not just with some good ideas, but with the recognition that, you know, when, when groceries go or when gas doubles, like, you actually feel it. And I think it's important not, not just to have a good, you know, head for this stuff, but also to have a good heart for it and to know what working families are going through. That's not Tim Ryan. It's unfortunately not too many of our politicians, but it's certainly me. I do want to talk more here about your opponent, Uh, Congressman Ryan. He really presents himself. I kind of get a kick out of it, actually. You know, he shows up on Fox News without the tie or that, you know, the ties loosened. He's just sort of the everyman. He's just Mr. Independent. And you look at his ads, you would never know he's a Democrat. He's just standing up to his party all over the place. That's what he's trying to put out there. He has outspent you vastly over the last couple of months trying to burnish that kind of image. And then, like, you know, I'm sorry, but you just look at his voting record. I, I you know, someone asked me the other day about this Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which is a, a ridiculous, ludicrous misnomer. And they said, did all of the Democrats, including the ones running for Senate, like Val Demings and Tim Ryan, did they all vote for this, too? I said, of course they did. 
I mean, Tim Ryan, if the question is, did he vote with Joe Biden on fill in the blank? The answer is literally always yes. It's all he does is vote for Joe Biden's policies 100 percent of the time last year. I just don't know how he thinks he's going to get away with that voting record compared to the way that he's trying to at least market himself to the people of Ohio. Well, he's betting on those of us in Ohio not being able to look up what he's actually done. And I think, frankly, he's betting on all of us being a little dumb. And I don't think we are. And I think that we're, we're, we're going to do in our campaign a very simple thing, and that's tell the truth. Because when people know the truth about what Tim Ryan has done and what he's failed to do, you're exactly right. They're going to see a guy who presents as a moderate in 30-second TV commercials and votes as a Washington liberal every single time on every single issue. You know, like this Inflation Reduction Act is a good example. Uh, I'm not happy with Joe Manchin that he voted for it. I don't think it was a good call. I think especially some of the amendments that, for example, would have limited the IRS auditing uh, to to, to people who made over $400,000 a year. I, I think that Joe Manchin really screwed up on this. But at least there was an open question about how Joe Manchin would vote on this thing. He has some independence from his party. That's not Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan does whatever the Democrats tell him to do, and that's what he would do in the U.S. Senate. My full interview with J.D. Vance available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, it's the whole show every day on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back to home stretch, I had an interesting interaction with a medical professional yesterday who put a real scare into me. Then I realized what he said wasn't what it seemed. We'll tell you that story right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show. Always glad to have you here. Always honored that you listen. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast always free. So last night, let me make this as simple as possible. I'm getting a new life insurance policy. I know that's very exciting for all of you to know. And I guess to get a new policy, you have to have a physical. And you need to fill out a bunch of forms about your medical history, and they need to put you through your paces and take your vitals and all sorts of other stuff. And so in order to do this, the company sent to my home a medical technician to take care of all these tasks. So there were a bunch of questionnaires on an iPad and, you know, one question after another about my medical history and so on and so forth. And the guy's very nice. He's sort of maybe in his 50s or 60s, and his wife also works in the medical community, he was telling me. And it's awkward to be answering all these heavy questions about have you ever had cancer and all this stuff while he's making small talk. And then there's a few other things that I had to submit some samples, for example, a blood sample. That was one of the things that I had to do. And actually, he told me that my veins are bad. My veins, he said, are too thin and therefore hard to get. And so he said, I bet you some technicians who are worse at their job than I am have to jab you multiple times and you bruise. And he was giving me all these sort of pro tips about how to avoid bruising when you get your blood taken and in the future with my little tiny baby veins or whatever, how I can help them have a better chance of finding the vein. And it was 
not my favorite conversation. And my general approach when I'm having blood taken is to just ignore the whole thing, look away and just wait for them to tell me it's over and put a Band-Aid on my arm and I leave. Like, I do not like it. I'm not that squeamish of a person, but watching needles go into my flesh is just not at the top of my list. Okay, so I keep looking away, but he keeps like almost quizzing me. What did I just say? Here's a little mnemonic device of how you remember. And he was just trying to distract me and be helpful, and I appreciate all of that. And he did a very good job. But I was also sort of suspicious about his critique of my veins because of something else that he had just done minutes earlier. So he was taking my blood pressure. And I'm forgive me for my ignorance, but I know it's something over something, two numbers. And so he was doing the thing where they – put the thing around your arm and then they squeeze, 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 and it gets tighter on your arm. And then he listens and he does a count or whatever. And just for some background info, yesterday was a slightly stressful day for me. I think my team here at the show (laughs) is aware of that. There were just a few different things that may have, for example, raised my blood pressure yesterday. I'm like, oh, right. Now I have to do this in my Life insurance rates are going to be set on this thing, and my number might be elevated because I've been really annoyed today for various reasons. Not important. So I'm sitting there now worrying about my blood pressure, and I think to myself, I've had a stressful day. This might not go the way it normally would because I'm generally not a terribly stressed-out person. Yesterday was an exception, and the timing seemed unfortunate. So – He squeezes the little balloon thing, and he's sitting there counting, and he's telling me to take a breath, and I do it. And he takes the first number, and he says the first number out loud, and he says, that's not good. And I say out loud, well, I've had a really stressful day. Like, I'm already making excuses. And now I'm getting more stressed out. He says, well, let's just get the other number. So... We did it again. He said the number out loud. He filled it out on the form, and he said, yeah, that's also not good. So I'm kind of now panicking. I'm like, A, am I unhealthy in some way that I don't know, and I'm just discovering it now? Or can my blood pressure really be significantly elevated because of some of these stresses and annoyances from earlier this afternoon And could this cost me a lot of money maybe? Maybe they look at these stats and this is all running through my brain. And then he has a little twinkle in his eye and here comes the dad joke. He said, I said it's not good because it's excellent. I was like, oh my God. It was not the joke that I needed in that particular context. And then he went on telling me how great my blood pressure is. Then he was laying it on a little thick. Like, you're like a marathon runner. I'm like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. (laughs) Let's let's be clear. I do like a 20 to 30-minute Peloton a day. I'm not out there running marathons. I might be in decent cardiovascular health. I'm not marathon level. So I was very relieved. He said, if you've had a stressful day and these are still your statistics, amazing. Like, he's just – now he's just praising me to the hilt. But for about 30 seconds, I was led to believe that I had bad – blood pressure. And he never said bad. He said not good because the punchline was going to be excellent. But it messed with me. It did. And then it reminded me 
of a doctor character in my favorite TV comedy of all time, Arrested Development. If you've never seen it, I strongly recommend it. Start with season one. The first three seasons are the best. Those are the original seasons. Actually, back in the day, it aired on Fox, Big Fox. So there's a doctor, Dr. Fishman, who would always deliver news in an extremely misleading, like technically accurate if you wait, but a very misleading way. That was part of the joke around this character and his communication. Here's one example. Cut 22. Excuse me, Mr. Bluth. We lost him. He just uh, got away from us. I'm sorry. Uh, can we go in there? If you want, not a lot to see. I mean, not for you, but for us. What the doctor meant to say was that George Sr. had escaped. Right, so he comes in saying we've lost him. And the family reacts like their patriarch has just died unexpectedly. And the lost him, he got away from us, was hyper-literal. This patriarch in the story is now at risk of becoming a convicted felon. And now he's run away to escape justice. But that's not what the doctor implied with what he said. So that just reminded me that here's one more example. Cut 23. Dr. Fishman doing his thing. Are you the Bluth? Oh, Dr. Wordsmith. How's my son? He's going to be all right. Oh, oh thank God. Finally, some good news. There's no other guy. way to take that. That's a great attitude. I got to tell you, if I was getting this news, I don't know that I'd take it this well. But you said he was all right. Yes, he's lost his left hand, so he's going to be all right. You son of a bitch. I hate this doctor. He's a very literal man. That's more the way I would take the news. (laughs) Yeah, your blood pressure is not good. Wait for it. Because it's excellent. All right. Thanks, Dr. Fishman. (laughs) Christine, how do you do at medical appointments? Are you just a calm, cool, and collected customer at the doctor's office? Oh, 100%. I mean, I never let anything bother me. You know, you really shouldn't overreact until you find out all the facts, guy. That's what I like to say. Yeah, that definitely sounds like you. (laughs) No, I'm a mess. The minute (laughs) the doctor, you know, they take your blood work. And I'm lucky my doctor does the blood work at his office, so I don't have to go anywhere else. And then, you know, you wait a couple days. Well, maybe you have better veins. Maybe you have good veins, unlike me. Like, is this, is this guy negging? Is he negging my veins? Or is he going to eventually, like three minutes from now, tell me that, just kidding, my veins are the best he's ever seen? No, no, <laughs> I guess the blood pressure he really meant was good, and my veins are little teeny tiny veins and makes his job harder. So maybe you've got that on me, Christine. Yeah, you, you, and, your li- you and your little baby veins. <laughs> good callback. And a Delvey action here. Uh, no, I'm a mess. Um my doctor, I've had the same doctor since, you know, you know, when you switch over from your pediatrician to a doctor, I've had the same exact doctor. And wow, a while bless his back, heart. Yes, yes. He's very patient with me. Um, I see him a lot. And um, well, you're a hypochondriac. Very- you're, you're like the typical like Google WebMD convinced that you're dying at all times. And the most dramatic possibility, the most outlandish terrible outcome is the one that your brain goes straight to. This is how you operate. Correct. So, and then I also, you know, if someone has something, I think I automatically have that. So I have, he gave me, he was very nice. 
after my father passed away unexpectedly, he was my dad's doctor too. He gave me his number just because he knew, you know, I was not great. Um, I believe that was probably over 15 years ago. I believe he regrets that decision. And Mm. not that long ago, maybe a few, five, six years ago, he actually had a talk with me of how I can't keep calling him on his cell phone. That I have to call the office. And if it's an emergency on the weekends, please don't call his cell phone. Call the emergency number. So I don't call as much as I used to. But yeah. Well, maybe he told you like, listen, Christine, all this constant calling me and texting me at all hours. It's not good. And in your mind, you thought, maybe he means it's great. He wants more of it. That's the mentality, perhaps. We got to run. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place, 3 to 6 Eastern. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.